I'm going to begin our study today by simply reading our text. It is I don't have any clever opening for you, just the text of God's inerrant word, Acts chapter 9, verses 1 through 9. This is God's word. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues of Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul arose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. As we look for over the next few weeks of the conversion of Saul of Tarsus, it is perhaps one of the, not perhaps, it is one of the greatest events that has happened in world history. The conversion of Saul of Tarsus is one of the most significant events in world history. I want you to note what I said carefully. It is one of the most significant events in world history. Note what I did not say. I did not say it is one of the most significant events in church history. It is that. The conversion of Saul of Tarsus transcends church history and is perhaps one of the most significant events in all of world history. I'm going to just put a few out there. The creation of the world may be the most significant event in world history. The fall of man, the life, death, resurrection of Jesus Christ, and the conversion of Saul of Tarsus we might quibble exactly where we place his conversion on the ranking of most significant events. But the world has, well, has not been the same since the day of Saul encountering the risen Christ on the road to Damascus. The world has not been the same. One of the most significant events in world history. Let me just describe to you where we've been, talk about some of the events that have led up to this moment so that as we go forward, we can uh, um, kind of be all be on the same page. Some of the events that has led up to this, um, and I won't go all the way back to Acts chapter 1. You can thank me later. Um, but basically what's happened is that God has loosed the gospel. He is unchain the gospel and it is spreading across borders and boundaries. So it's not just going across regional borders, going from um, the region of Judea into the region of Samaria. Yes, it is cross natural um, regional bound borders, but it is also crossing 
cultural boundaries. As it goes into Samaria, as the gospel is loose and goes into Samaria, it encounters a, a culture that is entirely different from that which was found in, in Jerusalem. And then it transcends that boundary and crosses the, the boundaries, the cultural boundaries, into an Ethiopian man, which we saw last week. And he took the gospel into his region. There have been many attempts to thwart the influence of the gospel. Namely, there has been persecution, but what we learned is that persecution did not nullify or hinder or cage the gospel, but actually it was the fire that spread the seeds of the gospel. So, that's going to be important as we go forward because the gospel has been loose. The, the, the good news of Jesus Christ has been set loose. And it's going into all of the world. But if you think it's been loosed up till now, you ain't seen nothing yet. So that's kind of where we've been. Just a quick preview of where we're going to go over the next few weeks. We want to spend some time talking about the conversion of Saul. Conversion of Saul of Tarsus, because one of the things we want to note that as the gospel spreads and advances, so does persecution. One of the things I hope to accomplish today in this message is to make much of Christ, to make much of God, that our vision of God would go grow grander and greater, that we would see the glory of his work in salvation. And in doing so, when we see the greatness and grandeur of God, we will be filled or overcome with awe and love for him. But having greater awe and love for him is not our end game. But that we would live out that love and awe in our lives, and that it would spill over to others. It is, I pray that this will be a reminder for the upcoming week, that we are saved by grace. It is so easy to get beat up every day you go to work, or every day, whatever your routine is, you wake up and Satan whispers or Satan screams or your flesh cries out, are you sure you're saved? Look at what you've done. Look at the mess you've made. Look at the thoughts you've thought. How could you call yourself a Christian? Today, I want to remind you for the upcoming week that you are saved by grace through faith on the merits of Christ alone. So when those thoughts come, you can say, yeah, I may need to repent of some things, but my righteousness is in heaven. My righteousness is in Christ. I am saved by God's gift, by believing in Christ, and it is on His work alone. And therefore, I will adore Him. I will, as I battle this week, my battle will be reminding myself of the gospel, of the good news of Jesus Christ. That's a brief preview of where I want to go. Our text begins with a very interesting statement. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. 
Saul, still breathing, threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. Before I unpack that, and I will unpack that, I want to read another verse. I want to read a verse out of 1 Corinthians. And so if we can bring that text up, I want you to see this amazing, it's a text you know. Listen to this verse. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. No more beautiful words have probably been ever been written and probably no more sublime words written than that. Here's the thing that is going to drive this message. The guy who wrote that is the guy who is breathing threats and murder against the disciples of Jesus Christ. So that just brings me to this question. What in the world happened? How do you get from chapter 9, verse 1 to chapter 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 7? How do you get from Saul still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord to love is patient and kind, hopes all things, endures all things, bears all things? How do you get there? Something happened. (laughs) Something amazing happened. Something supernatural happened. So I am going to hopefully, though imperfectly, try to help bridge that gap between chapter 9, verse 1 to chapter to 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 7. It'll take us a few weeks, but I want you to keep that in mind. Saul goes from ravaging the church in chapter 8, verse 3. This is what we learn. Um, But Saul was ravaging the church, entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. He ravaged the church. The picture of that that word is like a, a wild animal that is just tearing at its prey. Paul talks about his excessive fury against the church. How he pursued believers. The interesting thing here is um, Paul pursued. He just didn't say, well, you know what, let's uh, try to get some arrest warrants out there. Paul was interested in arrest warrants to get people imprisoned Christians, but he pursued them. He was active. He took an active role. Acts 26, verse 11 Paul says this, I punished them often in all the synagogues. I tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury, listen, this is Paul's own testimony. In raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. Paul's life mission was to eradicate Jesus' followers. Paul wanted to eradicate people who followed Jesus Christ. And he begins with threats and murder. Now, it's interesting because there is no actual account of Paul actually murdering somebody. But make no mistake, his heart is bent on murder. And we don't need to go very far um, from the gospel of Christ. 
Matthew chapter 5, 21, the Sermon on the Mount, that if you hate your brother in your heart, you have murdered him. We don't have to go very far. One does not need to physically put an individual to death. He is breathing threats and murder. And I think that's an interesting statement, don't you? Breathing threats and murder. This is natural to him. This is what he does. This is his nature. His drive was the destruction of others, all in the name of God. You might wonder, why is Saul such an angry man? Why is he so bent on murdering innocent people? There's a number of answers to that question, but let me just put forth a few that I think we can draw out from the text. Let's not forget that Saul is a religious man. Saul is a very religious man. He believes in God. He believes in the laws of God. He believes in the revelation of God. He is a man who believes in God. But he is also a man whose faith rests upon his own goodness. Let's look at Philippians chapter 3, verses 4 through 6. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, and as to righteousness under the law, I'm blameless. This is Paul's resume of righteousness. It is his resume of goodness. I am the epitome, the creme de la creme of a righteous person. From the time when I was first born, I was circumcised perfectly according to the law. I belong to the people of Israel. I am of the tribe of Benjamin. I am a Hebrew of Hebrews. I think that has the idea that his parents were Hebrew. He has a good heritage. My lineage is impeccable. As to the law, I was a Pharisee. Pharisees, I know we have a bad view, a negative view of Pharisees. Pharisees in Jesus' day were highly regarded. These are the most righteous people there has ever lived. That was who I was, Paul says. A Pharisee. As the zeal, was I zealous? Was I active in the church? Was I performing what God wanted me to do? Absolutely. I persecuted the church. And as to righteousness, blameless. Not a spot nor a blemish against me. This is Paul's resume of righteousness. He is... In chapter 9, verse 1, he is one who has full confidence that he will stand before the Lord in complete blameless blamelessness. I am righteous before God. I have no problem standing before a holy God. Why? Because I was circumcised on the eighth day. I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. I'm of the tribe of Benjamin. 
I was a Pharisee. And I'm blameless in, in accordance with the law. I have no problem. I have accomplished enough. My resume is good. God in no way would have any issue with me. Saul took solace in his credentials. Saul took solace in the fact that his credentials were sufficient to garner God's pleasure. Jesus' death on Calvary fulfilled all Old Testament promises. You hear me say that a lot. We know that saving faith is never about doing, and it has always been about trusting. And now Saul is left with nothing. The gospel of Christ, the, res- the death, burial, resurrection, ascension of Jesus Christ, and the gospel that the apostles are preaching and that the people are preaching is one that one must come to Christ and trust in his salvation, his work, his merits for our righteousness. And this runs smack dab into Paul's self-righteousness. That I must lean upon Christ's righteousness and and not upon my own righteousness. I would say this is probably Christianity's biggest stumbling block. That is, that we must come to Christ in our sinfulness. Because how many of you know, how many of you, y'all got friends, right? Well, I'm a good person, right? That's the number one thing. We need God. Well, I'm a good person. There's Paul. This is exactly what Paul said. I'm a good person. I got no problem. You're telling me that my Aunt Ida, who knits and crochets baby booties for orphan children, is not a good person. Is that what you're telling me? It is perhaps the greatest stumbling block for, or the greatest barrier of people coming to Christ. But it is our nature. Saul is proclaiming, I'm as good as you get. I have no need for a imputed or a credited righteousness. I have my own righteousness. I've done it all. And now you're telling me that my righteousness has no merit before God? What kind of God is that? I want to affirm to you that our nature is that we are opposed to God. It is our nature. Just as Saul breathing out threats and murder, this is his nature. He's not... It is coming out of him. See, the issue is not our willpower. It is not our desire to improve. The problem is our heart. Our heart is wicked. I I saw this passage in, in Jeremiah that I thought was so interesting Chapter 18, verses 11 and 12. Listen to what Jeremiah writes. This set me back a little bit. Now therefore, God is saying to Jeremiah, Now therefore say to the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I'm shaping disaster against you and devising a plan against you. Return every one of you from his evil way and amend the ways of your deeds. Listen to their response. But they say, that is in vain. 
We will follow our own plans and everyone will act according to the stubbornness of his evil heart. God says, turn to me and we say, no, I think I'm going to just do my own thing. Thank you, but no thank you. We know earlier Jeremiah said the heart is wicked beyond all things. So see, Saul is just acting according to his nature. That's our first thing. Saul is acting according to his nature. And I want you to understand that we are not unlike Saul because our practice follows our nature. This is well established in Scripture. Jesus says, out of the heart the mouth speaks. It is not that which comes out of the mouth that defiles the man, but that which is within is full of corruption and murder and and envying and, and, and vileness. Our practice follows our nature. See, what Jesus is going to do is not going to alter Paul or Saul's will. He is not going to give him instruction on how to be a better person. He's going to give him a whole new nature. But I'm getting ahead of myself. Saul is acting according to his nature, and so do we. And here's the thing. Don't forget that Saul actually thinks he's doing a good thing. Saul actually believes he's doing the right thing. As he's going, he is not thinking, oh man, I'm just a sinner, horrible person. I wish I could escape this terrible life of sin and corruption. No, he is perfectly self-justified in what he is doing. I, I would think, this is just my guess, that Saul perhaps likens himself to a guy by the name of Phineas in, in Numbers chapter 26. Go back and look at Numbers chapter 26. Don't do that now. Later. Um, go back to Numbers chapter 26. You'll see a guy by the name of Phineas who stopped the plague, who stopped God's plague upon his, the people of Israel by putting to death two people who were sinning and were part of the root cause of this plague. Phineas put him to death, pleased God, the, the plague was ended. I think Saul sees himself like Phineas. I am doing a good thing for God. I'm doing a righteous deed for God. I am honoring God because these people are perverting the glory of God. They are perverting the law of God. And I am going to put things right. I am a righteous man. Not only am I a Hebrew of Hebrews, not only am I a Pharisee, not only am I blameless, but I am a defender of God's honor. This is Saul. Now, we may not outwardly act as Saul did. In other words, we may not actually breathe out threats and murder towards people. But I want you to know that if we are unregenerated, we have the same condition. We oppose the truth and we resist the gospel and we resist Christ. Saul knew the law. Saul knew the prophets. He knew that the law and the prophets spoke of a coming Messiah, but he opposed them. Why did he oppose them? Because they, they, it was not his nature to believe them. Saul, I believe, was familiar with the teachings of Jesus. Certainly, he heard Stephen give testimony in chapter 5, verse 28. He heard the testimony of Stephen. Some might even entertain, and it's worth entertaining the thought that perhaps Saul even heard Jesus preach. They were contemporaries, and he would have been in Jerusalem at the time of some of the great feasts, so we don't know. I'm not going to suggest he did or he didn't. But Saul heard the teachings of Jesus. He was familiar with the teachings of Jesus. 
I pray that we find not find ourselves turned off, turned off by the preaching of God's word. So nobody would think for a moment that the man who left Jerusalem on that day would come to his destination a completely different man. The man who left Jerusalem arrived in Damascus a totally different person. And in our text we see now as he went on his way he approached Damascus. Now as he approached Damascus. Paul is nearing the town um, where he'd hoped to go and Christ encounters him and encounters him without warning. Just a quick little map. Here's Jerusalem down here. Here's the Dead Sea, Jordan River, Sea of Galilee right here. Jerusalem here. Damascus is right up, Damascus is right up in there. It's about 135 miles, about a six-day, six, seven-day journey. Paul has set off as one individual. When he arrives up here six or seven days later, he's going to be a completely different person. This is where he's going. And now as he approached Damascus, somewhere up in here, as he approached Damascus, without warning, he encounters something significant. God intervenes in Saul's life, and God intervenes in Saul's life in a rather dramatic way, don't you think? A couple things we should note. There are a couple things we want to draw from Saul's conversion that I think are communicable or transferable to us. There are some unique things. Let's, let's face it, every, every conversion is different. Saul's conversion, we can't say, well, I wish I had a Saul-like conversion or a Damascus-like um, encounter. Some of you will. Some, some people do. Some people don't. Um, but there are some things that are similar. And there are some things that are that occur in all conversions. One of the things we should note is how God intervenes in Saul's life in a dramatic, dramatic manner. Here's the interesting thing about Saul. Saul was not looking for Christ. Saul was not seeking Christ. Saul has shown no sensitivity to the gospel, despite having a clear testimony of the gospel. He's heard Stephen preach. Despite having a clear testimony of the gospel, nowhere in Paul's writings do we have an account that he, had, he was showing any sensitivity to, toward the gospel or that he was looking towards Christ at all. In fact, it says that he was kicking against the goads. Saul was, he'd heard Stephen's testimony and he hardened his heart. He saw Stephen's Christ-honoring death hardened his heart. Paul never in any way links his, his conversion to any preparatory work of God. His conversion was sudden and it was unexpected. Saul was not out looking for Christ. Another thing that I would like to point out about Saul's conversion is that we do not see Jesus acting as a gentleman. We do not see Jesus wooing and pleading with Saul. Oh, please, Saul. 
If you could find it in your heart to come and be a follower of mine, I would really appreciate it. And I'm just standing outside the door of your heart knocking, and I hope, I hope beyond hope, so I'll answer the door. There is no gentleman here. Here is the authoritative, reigning King of Kings, Lord of Lords, invading the life of a man not even looking for him. This is no milquetoast Jesus. This is the risen Lord, the authority of heaven and earth, the one to whom all authority has been given. The one ascended and seated at the right hand of the Father, making himself known to a guy not looking for him. This is God invading Saul's life and giving him what he does not have and hear this, what he doesn't even know he needs. This is God giving Saul what he does not have and what Saul doesn't even know he needs. This is an invasion. I want you to take note of God's divine sovereign grace. It is not a response to anything inherent within Saul. It is not God saying, man, Saul's such a smart guy, he would make a really good missionary. If I could just convince him, what could I use to convince him? How can I woo him? This is not in response to anything in Saul. This is unmerited grace. And whatever resistance Saul may have had is overcome by divine love. He experiences the love of Christ. And it so changes him that he goes from breathing threats and murder to love is patient, love is kind, love bears all, believes all. He is overcome by divine love. All barriers are broken down. All resistance is, is now covered over by the divine power and the divine love that he experiences in Christ. John Stott wrote this. I think it's apt. Saul did not, quote, decide for Christ, as we might say. On the contrary, he was persecuting Christ. It was rather Christ who decided for him and intervened in his life. The evidence for this is indisputable. C.S. Lewis put it this way, surprised by joy. Just going on his life, doing his thing, and he is surprised by joy. Where did that come from? In Titus chapter 3, verses 3 through 7. I don't know if I have that. Did I do a scripture? Okay, well then I'll read it. Titus chapter 3, verses 3 through 7. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasure, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us. 
Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Paul is arrested and accosted by the love of Jesus Christ. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And then he asked just a great question. Lord, who are you? I think I'd probably say the same thing. If I could speak, I'd probably say the same thing. Who in the world are you? Listen to the response. I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. I want you to stop and note the response. I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. This is the resurrected Jesus Christ. First of all, I have to think Saul realizes that Stephen was telling the truth. That guy, Stephen, when he said, I see the Son of Man standing at the right hand of glory. Saul is like, oh, I put him to death because of that. He was telling the truth. He was right. This is Jesus, the Lord of all. But I want you to also note what Jesus says here. I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. This is an interesting statement, don't you think? Because Saul's not persecuting Jesus. Jesus has died, buried, resurrected. He's in heaven. He's not persecuting Jesus. Who's he persecuting? He's persecuting the people of God. He's persecuting the church. This is a profound statement and certainly should have an effect on how we understand the church or the peop- and or the people of God. That is, persecution against those purchased by Jesus is persecution against Jesus himself. To destroy the people of God, to harm the people of God, to inflict injury on the people of God, Jesus is saying is to inflict injury on me. We, in other words, we are so identified, we are so united with Christ that our pain is his pain. And that when people come against the Lord of when they come against us or the people of God, they come against Christ himself. Luke chapter 10, verse 16. The one who hears you hears me. And the one who rejects you rejects me. And the one who rejects me rejects the one who sent me. Do you see the union of Christ with his people? He is so intimately joined that if you reject my, my messenger, you reject me. Perhaps the greatest example is in Matthew chapter 25. You all know the parable of the sheep and the goats. I was poor. I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was in prison and you came and visited me. Lord, when? When were you in prison that we 
came and visited you. Inasmuch as you did it to the least of my brethren, you did it to me. And in the least that you did not do it to the least of my brethren, you did not do it to me. Saul, why are you persecuting me? Perhaps that should give us a, so, some sobering thoughts as to how we speak about and treat the church of God. I think this is why when people come and divide the church of God, it is such a heinous crime in the eyes of God. So this should be a sober reminder. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And notice he says this, Now, but rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. I want you to note the imperative. Note the command. Saul, I'm Jesus. Now get up and do the thing I tell you to do. Again, we see the authority of the king. The king is not making a suggestion to Saul. Saul, get up, do the thing I tell you to do. And here's the amazing thing, and I believe this is where we see evidence of the conversion of Saul. He got up and he did what the Lord told him to do. About a minute later, he wanted to kill anything that had anything to do with Jesus Christ. And now he's saying, yeah, Lord, whatever you say. The command is followed by trust and obedience. So with open eyes, Saul obeys. Notice he does not obey grudgingly. He, he, he obeys willingly. Well, since you're the boss and you're the king and I really can't beat you, you know, you're stronger than me, whatever, I'll go do. Nope. I think this is why Paul's theology on the resurrection is so pronounced and so central because he has seen Jesus risen in his glory. And he obeys. His heart has changed. What Paul needed wasn't better morals. He didn't need more piety. He was not in need of a kinder, gentler disposition. Saul was in need of something completely different. Saul needed to be made new. Saul needed a new nature. Saul needed to go from breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord to love is patient and love is kind and love does not envy and love is not arrogant. Love does not boast. Love believes all things, hopes all things. He needs a new nature. And I believe we see the evidence of a new heart because the command requires trust and obedience and Saul obeys. And now, now Saul is before Christ, and you will know, note, no resume in hand. Saul has no resume of righteousness. The credentials that we read before, circumcised on the eighth day, a Hebrew of Hebrew, born of the tribe of Benjamin, as to his zeal, uh, or as to uh, righteousness, I'm a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, and before the law, blameless, and now, note what Saul says, or note what the Apostle Paul says later um, 
after he talks about his resume of righteousness. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. I got no resume of righteousness. I got nothing. All of that is rubbish. I think the Greek word, I'll put it nicely, is dung. I count everything as loss of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my, of my own, which comes, not having a righteousness that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I might know Him and the power of His resurrection and may share His sufferings, becoming like Him in His death, that by any means possible I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. All of that resume of righteousness, nothing. It's a loss. I come to you with nothing. All I have is the merits of Christ. This is an amazing encounter. That hateful man has now received the love and grace that will compel him to manifest the same love and grace for the rest of his life at whatever cost. Here's the thing. You and I, you may not have the exact same experience. God may not knock you on your keister and shine a bright light in your face and say, I'm Jesus whom you're persecuting. But all of you who are born again will be given a new nature. That's a non-negotiable. How you get there, some of you in very subtle ways, some of you may not even be able to identify a time and moment that you came to know Christ. Some of you are going to have a very well-defined, yeah, I was this way and then I was that way. But a new nature, a new heart is one of those things that Christ gives to all who belong to him. just want to make a, a quick personal application here. And I want to read this in 1 Timothy 1, 15 and 16. Paul writes a lot about his conversion. Paul writes a lot about who he was prior to his, his conversion and who he became afterwards. There's a lot of material in the New Testament about this. He, uh, he speaks much of it. And listen to this. It's writing to Timothy, a young pastor. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy. I'm the foremost of sinners, but I received mercy. And look at this. For this reason, why did Paul receive mercy? That in me, but I received mercy. I'm the foremost of sinners, but I received mercy. Why? That is in, that in me, the foremost, that is the foremost of sinners, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience. I am the foremost of sinners, but I received mercy so that in me, the patience of Christ might be put on display. Why? As an example to those who are to believe in him for eternal life. I want you to know Saul's conversion was for you. Think about that. Saul's conversion was for you. So that we might see the patience 
that Christ has towards sinners. Whether you are a believer here this morning or you are not, this event is for you. It is so that we might see and discover Christ's long-suffering, his patience for us. We see his patience in Saul, who was a rebel, who hated Christ, who put to death people who, who loved Christ, and Christ was patient with him and was merciful to him. His life was one of long abuse towards the people of Christ. And that long abuse was not a barrier to the grace of God. He had sinned tremendously. I'm the chief of sinners. I put to death the people of God. I'm the chief of sinners. And not even that was a barrier to the grace and mercy of Christ my Lord. Not even that could hinder the mercy of God. Not even that. And I was a sinner for a long time. But the length of my sin and the degree of my sin was not a barrier to the grace and patience and mercy of Christ my Lord who encountered me when I wasn't even looking for Him and gave to me that which I didn't even know I needed. All to the glory of Christ. And Paul says, it was for you. It was for you. I'm willing, Paul's basically willing to say, I'll do whatever it takes that you might know Christ. And if it's suffering for the cause of glory, whatever it is, I pray that today you will consider the immensity of Christ's love for you. And I pray that this day, that this great love will compel us to a fervency and appreciation for Him. If you're not a believer today, this would be a time to consider the, the grace and mercy of Christ. If you are a believer here today, I want you to walk into this week knowing that the lies that Satan tell you are just that lies. That Christ, there was no barrier There was no sin too great that Christ did not overcome that barrier and that sin to save you by His mercy. And that He imparted to you righteousness. And that's so important for you to understand. That He gave you righteousness. You did not earn it and you don't continue to earn it. Your righteousness, as we say a lot in this church, and I'm stealing it from people way, way more godly than I. Your righteousness is an alien righteousness. That is, it is outside of you. You are not righteous because you are good. And you do not become unrighteous because you are bad. You are righteous because Christ is righteous and you are in Christ. Your righteousness is in heaven. And today, when you're driving home, if you get angry at the slow drivers in front of you, you curse them out or whatever. Your standing with God does not change. Why? Because Christ's standing with God hasn't changed a bit. Now, ask for forgiveness. Seek God's forgiveness and and all of that. But your righteousness is in heaven. Paul understands this. Paul gets this. Paul leaves Jerusalem breathing threats and murder. And Paul enters into Damascus and he's going to be preaching the gospel that he once tried to snuff out. This is an awesome, this is a world-changing event. I'll conclude with this.
How are we to reconcile that the one who hated Jesus becomes the apostle of love? How do we reconcile those two men? Well, by the transforming grace of Christ. I want you to understand also that the grace that transforms us at conversion doesn't stop there. We don't just get grace at conversion and then, okay, well, there you go. Now, good luck. That grace that was with us, that brought about our conversion, that brought about our regeneration, that caused us to be born again, that same grace maintains us every day. That same grace will sustain us every moment of our lives until the day we breathe our last breath and we rejoice in the presence of the one who saved us. That grace will sustain you. That grace will uphold you. That grace will maintain. That grace does not waver and it does not wane. It is not dependent upon how you feel. Well, I feel loved by God today. Great. But God's love has not increased because you feel loved. You can say, I don't feel like God loves me today. The grace that saved you is the same grace that is going to sustain you and it will sustain you until the day that you no longer breathe and the day that you no longer need it because you will be in the presence of the one who purchased you and grace will no longer be necessary. So, we're going to continue to study individual Saul and his incredible conversion and I pray that it will give strength to you this day and this week as we, until we meet again. Would you stand and let's pray.